Fusion, the international science radio show. We have a bouncer and the doors of perception. <laughs> the good, the bad, the ugly. It gets pretty exotic. The myths, the truths. Toxicology. Astro-seismology. Magnetism, the dark side. Genetically engineered potatoes. Planetoid. Planetoid. I love that word. <laughs> <laughs> Hello and welcome to Diffusion. Listen while we squeeze amazing and bizarre science directly into your brain. I'm Ian Wolfe, and on this special edition, we'll visit the Open Source Developers Conference and speak with Ben Dakrai about privacy and open source. But first up, here's the news with Arwen Cross and Therese Chen. Life under the ice. Scientists have discovered abundant and diverse microbial life under the ice in Lake Vida in Antarctica. Lake Vida has water six times saltier than the sea, and it's about minus 13 degrees Celsius down there. The water in the lake is under about 27 metres of ice. Lake Vida is the largest of a set of small lakes in the McMurdo Dry Valleys in Antarctica. Scientists reported in PNAS this week that they'd found microbial life in water samples that they drilled from the lake in 2005 and 2010. They found cells at a less density than you would in a normal lake in mild conditions in fresh water, but they'd found that the cells were of two types. There were some that were normal size, about one micron, and some that were much smaller, which they're calling microcells of about 0.2 microns. Both the normal cells and the microcells were related to known types of bacteria. But one of the normal size cell types is different enough from known bacteria that it could be a new phylum. The scientists still don't know much about the bacteria. For example, they don't know what they're eating. Most bacteria eat a, a diet based on carbon to make their energy. But because Lake Vida has been sealed under ice for around 2,800 years, it could be that the carbon in the water would be scarce, and the bacteria could be doing something more interesting and eating another food source like hydrogen, perhaps. Or it could be that they're just not eating much and not dividing and reproducing in this cold environment. All of this remains to be found out. But one of the future experiments that sounds interesting is that the scientists are planning to drill into subglacial lakes, which have been buried under glaciers in Antarctica for millions of years, under several kilometres of ice. If life was able to survive in these extremes, it would give us interesting clues about whether it would be possible for life to survive on other planets. A recent study from the University of Sydney has revealed that the devil facial tumour disease is evolving. The finding, published in the Proceedings of the Royal Society B Journal, suggests that the cancer is altering on the epigenetic level. Epigenetic processes can induce changes in gene expression without alterations in the DNA sequence, and can be driven by environmental factors. Typically, cancer cells grow and die within the same individual. That the devil facial tumour is passed between individuals enables it to be exposed to different environments, subjecting it to different selective pressures and potentially influencing its pathology. The scientists measured both genetic and epigenetic variations of tissue samples using amplified fragment length polymorphism and methylation-specific polymorphism respectively. Whilst the tumour was found to be genetically stable, there was a high degree of epigenetic polymorphism. This is the first time that the role of epigenetics has been shown to play a role in this devastating disease, which has already killed 85% of the Tasmanian devil population. 
said late author, Associate Professor Kathy Belov from the Faculty of Veterinary Science. The next step in our research is to determine if the tumours are evolving to become more aggressive or less aggressive to help us to manage the species in the wild. Such plasticity may explain the variation in disease prevalence. Despite having been present in the region for over six years, only 20% of the West Pennsylvania population has been affected. Tumours from different regions of the state may behave quite differently, and this needs to be considered when making management decisions. It is really important to survey the phenotype, or behaviour characteristics of tumours, across the state to better understand how the tumour is evolving. Such future research could be aided by studying the canine transmissible venereal tumour. To date, the only other naturally transmissible cancer. If your software is open source, that means the computer code is open for any programmer to read. If you can read the code, then you can check it doesn't have any nasty surprises, like a backdoor for spies or a criminal way of stealing your bank details. If you can read the source code, then you can also fix problems and make improvements, or just learn from how it works and create your own software. There's an open source cola that comes with the recipe, so you can mix up your own cola with no trade secrets, and be sure you're not allergic to anything it's made of. You might even improve the flavour or fizziness. There's even open source hardware. The Open Source Developers Club had a conference at the University of Technology Sydney last week. I spoke with President Ben Dakrai open source guru and self-confessed privacy geek in the noisy halls of UTS. Please excuse the background noise. Back in 2004, Scott Penrose was running a YAPSI, yet another Pearl conference, and um, one of the Python guys and I approached Scott with the idea of running a PHP and a Python stream at the same time. So from that was born the name Open Source Developers Club, which was still run through the Pearl members, and then the following year was incorporated. Incorporated organisations can't be conferences, they have to be clubs, so we became the Open Source Developers Club and ran the conference for another two years, uh, after which we then outsourced it to cities who hosted it thereafter. So we now have the club uh, team who are called the exec and we manage the day-to-day -day admin, finances, that kind of thing. And we also seek bids for the next conference and the conference is now completely outsourced to local teams who run it end-to-end -end with our um, moral guidance, I suppose, and support. And so for listeners who aren't familiar with open source, how would you describe it to them? Open source is its almost a philosophy in a way. So a lot of people will be familiar with, with Microsoft products, for example, where you buy the software, or in fact what you're doing is you're buying a license to use the software. You don't actually own it. Uh, with open source there are many different types of licenses which all fall under uh, approved open source licenses. Some people might have heard of GNU, uh, GPL, the Apache license, for example. And, and they, they all have different levels of openness. So uh, one of the things that's very much encouraged is that when you provide software to somebody, you also provide them with not necessarily the source code with that delivery, but the opportunity or access to that source code. So it means that they can read, uh, or if they don't understand the source code, have somebody read it. This is very useful for organizations who perhaps need some kind of compliance. They want somebody to audit the software. To audit uh, proprietary software is extremely hard. You have to go possibly to a third-party auditor whom the, uh, the manufacturer will allow to look at their source code. It's all very proprietary and secret in a way. You also don't necessarily know that the files you get uh, are from the source code that you see with open source, even if you want to download the source code and compile it yourself, which is very useful for high security. Uh, installations where you want to know that what you're running is actually what was produced from the source code that you've looked at. So it, it provides complete transparency and openness. 
And that way you can trust that the software is coming from where you want it to come from. You can trust the software, yeah, not just because of their openness and transparency, but because if there are any doubts, you can then hire anybody who's qualified to look at the code and to audit it and tell you what their opinion is of it. And by, by merit of it being open source, you'll also get people who find issues submitting not just bug reports as you would with a, a proprietary application. You also find people will say, hey, I found this bug, and here's the source code to fix it. So the community actually help uh, in many ways to better the software through fixing bugs and also adding new features. And I think that's a huge thing for the open source versus proprietary, is that open source is a community where people can improve on the software. And so you get all these improvements and you just it's just not available. If you think of something better and there's a Microsoft product or some other brand out there, too bad. Absolutely. It gives users also a sense of ownership. Um, even if uh, uh, there are probably thousands of people, millions of people using open source software, but they are not developers. And uh, from that point of view, open source isn't only about the coding, it's also about the community support. You'll find that many people might be uh, a moderator on a forum where you might know how to use GIMP, for example, which is a very popular image manipulation tool that's completely open source. And you'll find that there's communities out there that will help people learn how to use GIMP. So you might write a tutorial or answer questions on a forum or uh, triage bug reports that come in, you might not know how to fix them, but you could possibly assign some kind of severity to them. Yes. So there's all sorts of different ways that people can contribute back to open source, regardless of whether they're a developer or not. And again, for the people who aren't programmers, it's obvious that there's a whole gamut of career paths for people. You don't have to keep your source code secret to be able to make a living from selling sure. things. It's a very popular question, how do you make money from open source? The, the proprietary model is we write software and then you pay a license to be able to use it and that might be a one-off license as with uh, Windows for example or it could be a, a recurring license which other, is another model of, of making money. Um, the advantage to that model is that you write it once and you sell it many times which is very good from a, a lowering the cost to the end user but also ensuring that you have a, a, a cash flow stream coming in whereas with open source you say well you can't make money from open source because you give it away for free. There are again options with that. If you're the owner of the source code, you can do what's called dual licensing, where you could provide one of them under an open source license, and you could provide another version under uh, a different proprietary type of license where you might provide extra functionality, perhaps. Um, now, it becomes a bit complicated, and I won't go into what happens when you take somebody else's open source code, but mm -hmm. there are limitations to what you can do with that depending on the license. But if you're the owner of that, there are ways you can make money. Also, another very popular way of making money with open source software, uh, whether you write it or not, is through service industry. So you'll find there's lots of people out there who um, are Drupal developers, for example, they might not be core contributors, although a lot of uh, Drupal developers who use it as their day-to-day -day job also do contribute back to either modules that they use or the core code behind Drupal. But they, they can use that as uh, a platform on which to provide services to clients, which yes. they then build their time. So there's still many options out there. And the, the community, as you referred to before, in open source is such that people do possibly talk more and share the code more. Um, and, and you build a larger network, so finding a job can possibly, I haven't done any studies into it, but I would imagine it could possibly be easier to find a job in the open source world if you, you have that network there already, which would be easier to build perhaps. Ben Dekroy will be back talking about crypto parties and privacy after the song Science Style by the George Center for Musical Therapy. Yes, it's a science parody of Gangnam Style by Psy. <laughs> This is science style. When you see some things in the world that seem strange, makes you stop and wonder what could have caused that change. You don't have to wonder, you just have to use your brain. The scientific method.
it will save the day again. First you ask the question, who, what, why, when, how, or where. Then you do research, checking at the library on Foursquare. Then you make it guess, test it out with an experiment. Results will blow your mind, tell us what you find. This is science style. Science style. This is science style. Hey, all you chemists. This is science style. Hey, all you biologists. Your hypothesis is an educated guess. Based on observations, now we'll put it to the test. The scientific method is a structured way to learn. No more urban legends, you must be able to discern. You got two variables, independent and dependent. Dependence, what you measure. A baseball player's batting percent. Independence, what you change. Like his bat metal or wood. Tell me which one would make him hit real good. This is science style. Science style. It, 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 it. This is science style. Hey, all you psychologists. This is science style. Hey, all you botanists. Science style. This is science style. This is science style. You're listening to Diffusion Science Radio. Diffusion at 2SCR.com. Brought to you across Australia on the Community Radio Network, into Sydney on 2SER, and over the internet on www.diffusionradio.com. The best way to stop your privacy and stop people stealing your identity is to use encryption. Ben Dakrai explains what a crypto party is and how you can protect your privacy and identity online and on your phone in the noisy halls of UTS at the Open Source Developers Conference. Essentially, it was a term that was coined by a woman in Melbourne called Asher Wolf, who was talking on Twitter about uh, it was around the time when there was a lot of talk of the national security inquiry in Australia and, and how governments wanted to retain information. And there was a, a, the, the obvious defence to that was through education of the people to understand what the implications were. And uh, Asher coined the term crypto party, where you talk about cryptography at a party. 
Yeah, essentially. So the first one that, that she organized in Melbourne ran possibly three or four weeks after the original coining of the phrase. But before that even happened, it took off worldwide. Uh, there were, I don't know how many, but in excess of a dozen, two dozen crypto parties all over the world, you know, uh, countries that speak all sorts of different languages, and it just really took off. I believe there's now been two or three in Melbourne and quite a few around Australia. So given my interest in security and privacy and, and my talk yesterday on security, privacy and anonymity and how the three work together or sometimes don't, I also, having missed both of the crypto parties in Melbourne, thought, well, great opportunity here with the open source community to get together and talk more about crypto, what the, uh, the issues, concerns are, uh, and, and also where trying to protect yourself can actually decrease your anonymity, which is somewhat of a, uh, a curiosity. If we want to get very quickly across why people should be so concerned about their privacy, where is their privacy in danger? The most common response to that is usually to talk about things like government spying, three-letter acronym organizations in the US, for example, uh, the retention, the data retention that is, is planned or proposed in Australia, whereby internet service providers have to keep two years' worth of logs of what the government is terming metadata, yes. which is not necessarily, for example, the content of the email, but the fact that I email you at this time from this location. Uh, so that kind of stuff is being logged and stored for two years. So there's, there's the questions of, of, does the government have the right? And the counter to that is, well, if I've done nothing wrong, then I've got nothing to hide, which is probably one of the worst excuses I've, I've heard, because uh, oftentimes you don't know the implications of your breach of privacy until after it becomes an issue. So there's examples, for example, in the US in, uh, with the uh, indefinite detention issue at the moment, you can be indefinitely detained if you are associated with any organization that is um, categorized as a terrorist organization. Now, there's also, if, if you look at that as a single issue, you think, well, that's a great idea. If you're associated with terrorists, then of course we want to question you, and we might not be able to have any proof, so we detain you without basis in fact. And association can be very loose. Association can be very loose, and one of the issues that's come about is through journalism. Journalists deal with terrorist organizations through their daily lives. Maybe not all of them, but some of them will in terms of reporting what's going on in um, repressive countries or, or whatever, and, and then there's the definition of terrorist regime or terrorist organization. There's a um, petition at the moment on the White House website where uh, US citizens can petition for the White House to deliberate on an issue. And I don't think it's got much traction at the moment, but the fact that it exists was a little concerning. They wanted uh, the White House to uh, designate WikiLeaks as a terrorist organization. So now anybody who had donated money to WikiLeaks, or possibly even if anybody had downloaded WikiLeaks when it was going through a tricky time, provided an encrypted copy of all of their data, yes. so that anybody could get the encrypted copy, but they couldn't see it, and it was kind of like a failsafe. If yes. we die, we will release the password. Uh, so anybody who download, downloaded that for the sake of the data not being lost would be associated. So there's all sorts of, as you say, the, the definition of an association and the definition of a terrorist organization can cause great issues. There could even be someone retweeting something about WikiLeaks. Absolutely, and I was speaking to somebody the other day. Uh, a retweet is actually deemed in law to be your, your statement. So if you said something and I retweeted it, then I am adding to that. So if, if there was a libel case, for example, then I could be sued for libel as well as you yes. because I've retweeted it. So again, the retweeting, if I retweet something that WikiLeaks says, then does that make me associated with them? It's a very uh, tricky situation at the moment in terms of law, governance, uh, policy, definitions. Uh, mm. Very uh, awkward time at which to try and determine whether what you're doing uh, could at some point be 
determined to be illegal or questionable. The whole government's finding is one issue. One of the biggest concerns that isn't discussed enough, though, is identity theft. And um, that's probably more prevalent if you have your information in systems that are logged for long periods of time, then how can you trust that organization to maintain control of that? We've seen issues with password leaks for the whole of the, well, a large portion of LinkedIn users. Um, there's, there have been quite a lot of reports recently of data leakage through, uh, not, not intentionally, but through accident. But if that information gets out, then that information could potentially be used by uh, anybody, I suppose, That's right. who, who can collate that data and pr produce some kind of profile to uh, to profile you and, and to enable uh, privacy theft, uh, identity theft. Yes. And of course, the issue with that is that a lot of people say, well, why would anybody be looking at me? The, the average Joe Bloggs, in big air quotes, uh, is probably the most likely target because they're the easiest to impersonate. If you're normal yes. and average and don't do anything wrong, then that's exactly who somebody who wants to impersonate somebody will want to impersonate. Absolutely. So, I mean, anybody could take your identity, whether a criminal or a spy or whatever they're trying to get away with, mm -hmm. and you'll get blamed. Absolutely, yeah. And you will have no recourse. You won't know who did it um, from where the leak came. Obviously, in, in many cases, there will probably be multiple leaks that have been used to build up that profile. But you're asking about tools and encryption. Now, what can we do about it? So there's a, a number of things. If you wanted to um, anonymize yourself online, if you wanted to visit a website such as WikiLeaks, or if you wanted to report something um, without being identified, now at the moment any request you make, your ISP can see That's right. a large amount of information, maybe not everything, but a large amount of information that you're transmitting or receiving. So there's a, a tool called Tor, which stands for the Onion Router. And if you go to torproject.org, you can download a bundle, which is the, uh, the client for Tor, and also a browser that's specifically configured to use Tor. And once you connect, your, uh, your connection is essentially encrypted via multiple points in the internet, uh, all of whom only know either uh, neighbor of those points. So if you imagine your request is being relayed through multiple other computers, they will only know their neighbors. So by going through three points of, of uh, three relays, your node will never know where your final request was actually uh, served from. And the person who serves that response, say you go to the WikiLeaks website, for example, they won't know who you are, and there's no way of finding out who did that in between. And the, the data uh, up until the point that you're still within that Tor network is also completely encrypted. So those nodes that are facilitating your anonymity can't see anything to do with the content of your request. So if you're running Tor, you can choose to have they call an exit node so that you other can, people can you go can through? can be an exit node. Uh, I would advise anybody who wants to be an exit node to look into the uh, repercussions of that very carefully. There have been cases. Just recently in Australia, a man was arrested for operating an exit node. I believe somebody used it to download uh, pic uh, naked pictures of underage children. And uh, obviously, as a Tor exit node operator, you have no control over what data goes in or out. You have to appreciate the fact that you're basically uh, relaying for anonymous people. Now, Tor will be used by criminals. Uh, but it also is used by people who are not criminals, who require uh, anonymous means of communication to communicate, for example, within repressive regimes again. Uh, you could use the criminals who use Tor argument with anything. Criminals use postal mail for sending ransom letters. Uh, the, the means of communication can't be held responsible. And this man apparently now has been, after having explained to the judge what Tor was, has now been released. I'm not sure of the full details of that. Um, but it does raise the question, does my, is my ISP, if I'm not using it at all, is my ISP responsible for allowing me to download information? And, and by law they're not at the moment. Right. So why should this man have been held responsible? Because essentially he's an extension of an internet service provider. A common carrier. Mm, absolutely. Um, yeah. So there's definition, again, definition, policy, governance, and understanding of what the rules are and how they apply to different entities is very much up in the air at the moment. Well, that's right. And of course, a lot of internet providers actually have a mirror of your email on their websites. Yeah. And they also know your passwords because they ask you for them over the phone. Mm -hmm. 
So I would think most of your email is not very private, at least from the internet service provider, and certainly not from Google. Absolutely. I, if, if you're concerned at all about who can read your email, I would very much recommend running your own mail server, which sounds like a daunting prospect, but uh, there are ways around that, probably uh, slightly out of uh, context for this conversation. Um, but I'm actually working on a project at the moment that will try and help people um, provision a server and deploy um, full end-to-end uh, email instant messaging all over secure protocols where you then in control of your data. And I'm very much in favor of people owning their data. If you use uh, Gmail, for example, you don't mm. own your data, no. but they could, their server could go down and you've lost your email. Similarly, some uh, government organization could request information about you, which Google then would be uh, enforced to provide. That's so right. owning your own data is a very important thing, I think, um, in terms of protecting your privacy and reducing incidences of identity theft. I think the same goes for the cloud. You can have your own cloud rather than Absolutely. rely on somebody else's. Yeah. So cloud is basically uh, a term that means lots of computers. Uh, essentially, the internet is a cloud anyway. There are certain other uh, qualities that make something technically called a cloud service. Um, but if you have a server anywhere, even if it's a computer connected to your home internet connection, you have a publicly accessible uh, server that you can, can access your email on. Um, I run an equivalent of Dropbox for my, my file storage, which synchronizes across my computers. Um, you do need some kind of technical knowledge to install these at the moment, but that's sure. getting a lot better. It is. And what about securing your phone? So I have never owned an iPhone. I can't talk very much about that. Sure. In terms of Android, if you want to go full hog, um, I believe it was the NSA wrote a version of Android which is called SE Android. I won't go into exactly what it is, but essentially it's an improved permission system and inc- increases the security. Obviously, they want a high security operating system used by NSA operatives. I run CyanogenMod on my Android phone, which is a version of, of Android, and uh, it, it does not connect to Google. So they, I don't do any syncing. Google don't get my contacts or my email. Or uh, the downside to that is I can't use Google for installing software. But there are other ways of installing that software. I run Text Secure, which is a drop-in replacement for my SMS application, which means that if I SMS, send an SMS to anybody else who's using Text Secure, it's actually encrypted before it leaves your phone, so even your telephone provider can't read it. Uh, if the other person is not using Text Secure, it's still sent in plain text, but anything on your phone is encrypted. So you'll need to enter your password every time you restart your phone in order to be able to read your SMSs again. That was Ben Dakrai explaining open source privacy and crypto parties in the noisy halls of the University of Technology, Sydney at the Open Source Developers Conference. And that's all from us this time on Diffusion. Send your email to diffusion at 2SCR.com. That's diffusion at 2SCR.com. Subscribe to our podcast on the Diffusion website, www.diffusionradio.com. That's www.diffusionradio.com. And for iTunes listeners, we have a special treat. The last eight weeks of Diffusion didn't make it to iTunes, but that's now been fixed. Contributing to the program were Therese Chen and Owen Cross. I produce Diffusion in the studios of 2SCR in Sydney, and Diffusion is broadcast nationally via the Community Radio Network. I'm Ian Wolfe. Join us inside your audio device of choice for more science wondering next week on Diffusion Science Radio. Looking at the URL, the first thing that sticks out is the colon. And how about a slashing or cutting sound for the slashes? To complete the experience, we might throw in the HTTP and maybe some kind of download sound. www.diffusionradio.com Lachlan Watmore on guitar.
Thank <laughs> you.